In the last few episodes, we have focused on various aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic in India, from its impact on the healthcare sector and what we need to do for health preparedness, to its impact on different sectors of the Indian economy. But today, we zoom out to get a broader perspective of the disease, to understand what lies behind the epidemiological models, and also how different countries, particularly the United States, are preparing themselves to confront the disease. Our panel today will dive into the medical, testing and epidemiological aspects of COVID-19. The episode is not focused on India, but of course, we will ask our panelists some specific questions relevant to the current story as it unfolds in India. You're listening to ThoughtSpace, the podcast for the Center for Policy Research, where we discuss the pressing policy issues and development challenges that India faces. Welcome to the fifth episode of our special COVID-19 series. I am Yamini Ayer, President and Chief Executive of the Center for Policy Research. And to talk to us today, we have with us Dr. Christiana Iaseri and Dr. Soumya Das, both of whom are doctors at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Christiana is a clinician and is in charge of the Mass General Innovation Lab and Soumya is a medical researcher. So we have both a clinician and a medical researcher to discuss some of the medical aspects of the disease. And we have Dr. Nimpati who's at the Imperial College and is an epidemiologist and will help us better understand the epidemiological elements and modeling behind this. Also joining me in this discussion as a co-host is my colleague Dr. Jishnu Das senior visiting fellow at the Center for Policy Research and professor at the Georgetown University. Thank you very much and a very, very warm welcome to all three of you uh, who've taken time out. You're probably busier than anybody else. um, And therefore, we truly, truly appreciate uh, that you have been willing to take time out uh, across multiple time zones to be with us uh, this, this evening in New Delhi. Thanks, all of you. Christiana, perhaps I can start the discussion with you by asking you to tell us a little bit about hospital preparedness in the United States. This is an issue that, uh, at least in the Indian context, comes up again and again in terms of how, how do we ensure that service readiness, hospital readiness is in place uh, as and when uh, things go out of control. Um, and most in India are scratching their heads trying to understand what we do. Our situation, of course, is somewhat unique because of the nature of our health systems. But I do think listeners would, be, uh, would learn a lot by getting a better sense of what's happening in the United States and perhaps spe- specifically in your hospital. Uh, Jishnu told me that you're going to be joining the ward starting tomorrow, or, uh, I think, uh, the isolation ward. So learning, getting your perspective will, I think, really help the listeners get a better understanding of what it means when we say hospital preparation. Thank you very much for having us. I want to um, specify that I speak specifically on my own behalf and on the behalf of Mass General Hospital. But I think in general, we can, we can discuss this from some several broad categories. The first is what you sort of started to touch upon in the beginning is the importance of diagnostic testing. And from a hospital perspective or from a caregiver perspective, that's incredibly important in helping us understand both the nature of the disease, the clinical presentation, and actually who is truly presenting with COVID-19. 
When you think about it from a large clinical provider's perspective, how do we diagnose patients? How do we appropriately isolate them? And then how do we treat them? All breaks down to understanding who does or does not have the disease. So yeah. the ability to rapidly um, test patients, put them in the appropriate um, clinical categories and treat them as a consequence has been a large challenge for I think most clinical providers and large healthcare institutions here in the United States. The second category would be really thinking about and linked to the, the clinical presentation of disease. And one of the challenges for COVID-19 has been the sort of diverse spectrum of presentations from patients who are completely asymptomatic to those who have um, mild symptoms to those who are, are presenting with profound respiratory distress. The challenge there becomes the rapid kind of clinical deterioration and difficulty with breathing requiring intensive care and um, very high levels of care for patients that are admitted to the hospital. So from a, from a hospital preparedness perspective, you have to think about the availability of both the ICUs, the ability to ventilate patients who need um, mechanical assistance in helping breathing, and then the appropriate staff to be able to support patients who are critically ill. The third category um, comes down to thinking about how do we both protect our healthcare providers when, they're, when they are providing clinical care to our patients, and that comes down to what we think about is what we call PPE, so um, the ability for people to wear the appropriate gowns, masks, and eye protective care. Um, and the challenge there has been from, again, the mass perspective from the perspective of the United States, we just haven't been prepared um, in terms of having appropriate gowns and masks to make sure that the healthcare providers that are actually delivering care are protected and themselves not getting infected, both because we don't want to perpetuate transmission, um, both within the healthcare provider community to our patients, and then again, to the global, the global space at large. So from a, from a large care provider perspective, again, the things that we, that we worry about and we think about a lot are the ability to rapidly diagnose patients, categorize them, understand the spectrum of disease, the ability to rapidly um, ramp up our ability to care for these patients, and in particular, the intensive needs they need when they go into respiratory failure. And then the thirdly, the ability to protect our, our healthcare providers and ensure that they are not getting infected in the course of providing care for their patients. Thank you so much. That is really, really helpful to understand how you're thinking about this from a clinical provider perspective. Uh, but let me ask you two questions. One, when it comes to the ability to rapidly test, one of the things that we've been grappling with in, in India, certainly, is how do we actually go about doing this? So for, for the, to begin with, a lot of our testing protocol was really just limited to patients that had symptoms and had either international travel or contact with people with international travel, we're now moving on from there to thinking about doing prevalence testing um, and potentially even in a randomized way. So we're, we're thinking of testing not when a patient comes, but also proactively testing. From your perspective, what would be the right way in which one could go about this? That's a difficult question to answer, to be quite honest, and I think it depends on where you are in the pandemic and what your goals are in terms of thinking about testing. So as you highlight, from a large medical perspective, um, hospital provider perspective, our goal is to rapidly diagnose patients and put them into the particular um, categories that they need for clinical care. That's a different goal in terms of your, if you're thinking about trying to aggressively isolate patients in the community to prevent ongoing community spread of the disease, which you could 
do early on, which would be a different approach in terms of what, where we are now here within the United States in terms of trying to think about how to flatten the curve. So, you know, probably Samia, our, our epi epidemiologist, could help kind of think about that question in a little bit more detail. But again, I think it depends on where you are within the pandemic and what your particular goals are. And my sense is that different components of the healthcare community will have different goals as it relates to testing. And the, the second question I had was really back to this question of isolation treatment and uh, facilities to, to, to healthcare providers in particular. We understand that we're learning from experiences as we go along, but could you help us understand, for instance, how um, the experiences of hospitals as uh, the disease sort of uh, unfolded in, the, in New York, for instance, is shaping responses in other parts of, of the United States, in particular your hospital, uh, in terms of what are the learnings, because this is, of course, evolving as we go. I mean, you highlight an important point in that it's a very dynamic environment and we're all trying to kind of learn from what's you know, started from the very beginning in China and kind of what's rolled out on a global scale. Um, I, I think it comes back to the fundamentals that we defined before in terms of thinking about those core categories of being able to rapidly diagnose, provide the intensive sort of care um, that's needed for patients that are sick, and then perhaps provide um, protective protection to our providers. I think from the clinical perspective, we're getting a lot better sense of how patients present and the relatively atypical features or the features that we are somewhat unfamiliar with as it relates to COVID-19. So in particular, along the clinical spectrum for patients that um, present with acute respiratory failure, and again, this is um, a, a small minority of patients who are actually infected, they tend to present with rapid respiratory failure requiring relatively early intervention with mechanical ventilation and then requiring prolonged periods of mechanical ventilation, which again is accessory machines to help you breathe, um, it, to pro promote recovery. This is relatively different from other sort of presentations of respiratory failure that we think about relative to, let's say, a bacterial pneumonia or other types of viral pneumonia where um, the presentation of the respiratory failure may not be as acute, the prolonged period that's required for intubation for recovery might not be as long, and then in terms of how we think about managing that um, period that people need mechanical ventilation, it's somewhat different. So I think from the clinical perspective, we surely are really learning a lot more about how to care for these patients appropriately. Similarly, um, we're learning a lot more about how the disease is spread, um, how patients can become infected, both from asymptomatic carriers and from close contact with people that are infected, and that's changing our approaches um, in general. I'd now like to hand over to Jishnu to take the conversation forward with Soumya. So Soumya, just picking up on that question, I mean, two issues that Christiana raised. One is they are very different presentations of the disease, right? Some people are asymptomatic. Some people seem to go into severe respiratory failure. Uh, do we know anything about why that variation comes around? And the second, which is this whole issue of aerosol versus droplet transmission, uh, what does that really mean? And uh, what does it mean for the disease? Yeah, so two very different questions. We'll tackle the first one first, which is a really fascinating question in terms of the science behind it. And again, um, I'll preface all this by saying I'm, again, speaking on my behalf and not on behalf of MGH. And 
I'm not a biologist. You know, my research is focused on RNAs. So, uh, uh, so this is sort of a scientific interpretation of the literature that's out there. And the second thing I'll also kind of give caution to viewers is that a lot of the literature that's out there, and rightly so, has been um, put on things like bioarchives that allows for rapid dissemination of information, but ne hasn't necessarily been peer reviewed. So just a few things in caution when you interpret some of these studies. Um, so the question uh, you asked is why do some patients present asymptomatically and why do some patients have a critical course? Um, so there are two ways you can think about this. Is it that the virus is different in those patients who have a critical course versus those who are asymptomatic? Has it somehow changed its characteristic? A lot of these RNA viruses are not particularly, uh, create mutations when they replicate, although most of these are not of much consequence. Now, one of the interesting thing, epidemiological things or uh, when you look at cases is that within the same family, you can have someone who is fairly asymptomatic and someone who gets rather sick, which seems to argue that it, it's unlikely that the virus has mutated because they're probably infected by the same virus, but that's something to do with the host response to the virus that dictates why some people do well and some people do poorly. So then you start thinking about, well, what do we know about the host response? You know the virus propagates quite extensively in the upper airway first before moving down into the lower airway in some people. Um, and then the other curious thing is that the sort of crashing of patients where they turn into a critical course doesn't happen very early on in the disease uh, after onset of symptoms, uh, but happens somewhere in the 10 to 14 day phase. Um, and so the two thoughts are, um, is the virus spreading to other organs um, such as the heart and, or the kidney? Um, or is this an exuberant response of the body's inflammation? The body's going to fight the virus by activating immune cells, different types of cells called T cells. And these cells can elaborate proteins called cytokines. And these cytokines can actually end up having an adverse effect by causing leakage of fluid into the lungs, by causing stunning of the heart muscle, and so uh, uh, the two leading theories are that um, the virus may in fact, in fact uh, infect other organs such as the heart, um, or it may uh, cause a significant increase in the cytokines that lead to all the damage and can ultimately precipitate a critical care or even mortality. And if you look at some of the data behind this, again, these are, are not proof of principle data, um, these are based on uh, things like mice studies, uh, studies from the previous related SARS coronavirus that was there in 2012 that has been studied more extensively. Um, it, these studies do suggest that, in fact, um, you, you can have triggering of this cytokine storm. And some of the therapies that are now being tried out try to modulate the immune response to see if that can uh, affect things better. And then the last thing is that are there genetic differences? And this sort of pertains to. Uh, some of the unknowns about how this might affect things in India are the genetic differences, say, between the receptor for the virus. The receptor is something called ACE2, which is found particularly in lung cells. Are there different forms of this depending uh, on your ethnicity or your genetic background? And is that why some patients uh, do poorly and some patients do well? And actually, the last, the third last thing I'll say is that could this also be related to how much dose of the virus you get? So, you know, if you get a high initial dose of the virus, does that affect not only how the virus is affecting your body, but also the immune re uh, reaction? So all these things are uh, 
uh, not well known yet, but things that people are investigating. And then the second question is the whole issue of aerosol versus droplet. So, you know, the droplet is when people cough. These are larger droplets. They don't persist for long periods of time and can be protected with surgical masks. The aerosol are much smaller particles. They can stick around longer. And so you need better uh, protection. And these can stick to things like clothes. And when you wave the clothes or you try and dispose of them, you can generate more aerosols. So those become more infective. And this is based on a, a couple of studies. Uh, one was a experimental study that was published in New England Journal, where using uh, viral particles, uh, investigators generated aerosols or droplet and then used mathematical models to look at the half-life of this and found that similar to the SARS virus, uh, the, uh, you can find airborne uh, uh, aerosols containing the COVID-19 virus um, that can last from two to three hours. Uh, that's about the proposed half-life and can last on surfaces as well. Remember, this is an artificial study. You're generating these in a machine and then looking at what their half-life is. The other two are um, somewhat poor quality studies. Um, I would say poor quality just based on metrics of how you assess these. Um, one of them is slightly larger than the other, um, looking at where these uh, viral RNA can be detected in patients' rooms in ICUs. Again, so remember, these patients are critically sick, not the asymptomatic patient walking around. And they found that you can detect, in fact, viral particles uh, in the toilet seat or in the uh, surfaces surrounding the patient room. Um, now, there's a critical difference between detecting viral particles and detecting actual virus that's infective. So that's important to know. So we don't know if those viral particles are infective, but it's a possibility. So I think the, the idea is that it's possible that you can get airborne transmission through these very fine uh, uh, droplet and fine particles that contain the virus, but whether that's infective or what, how much of a role it plays in transmission of virus is not yet clear. So that's super uh, helpful and uh, important to distinguish. So if it is, it might be that this is highly infective both through aerosol, well, certainly through droplets, and we're not sure about the aerosol infectivity. And as Christiana said earlier, it's going to be critical to, to test um, at a high uh, level. So take us through a little bit. We're hearing a lot about testing. We're hearing about PCR-based tests, serological tests, uh, all kinds of new tests coming on the market all the time. Help our listeners understand a little bit, um, you know, what are these different tests and uh, what do we mean by them when we say we test somebody and they come out positive? Do, are we sure that they actually have COVID-19? Could it be that it's a false positive? You know, take us through a little bit what these different tests mean and how we should interpret them. Yeah, so I think uh, Nim will probably have more to add to this as an epidemiologist. But when we think of a diagnostic test, we think about four characteristics. We think of sensitivity, which means that of all the patients who have the disease, how many have a positive test? Um, so here you have to know, you have to have some definition or a true gold standard of what, what does it mean to have a disease? Now remember, this is a new disease, so we don't have a gold standard test. So all these tests are new and emerging tests. Um, the second is specificity, which means that if you don't have the disease, then how many people are, have a negative test? So, so those do need a very clear definition of who has the disease. And when you start looking at clinical sensitivity and specificity, for which we don't have good data, because again, there is no true gold standard, you may base it by saying, why a clinical suspicion that this is COVID-19 related illness 
is very high, and that's what you're basing it on. The other two that are clinically relevant, and I think Christiana alluded to, the, to this in terms of how you treat these patients, are a negative and positive predictive value. So negative predictive value means if, you're, if my test is negative, uh, how sure am I that I don't have the disease, right? Because that's what you really need to triage patients. That if you have a negative test, we are very confident that you don't have the disease. Um, conversely, a positive predictive test is like, if my test is positive, then how confident am I that I have the disease? So those are the four characteristics that you really need to know. Uh, and ideally, you would want everything to be 100%, right? Because then you have a, a really good test. So um, uh, for the last two, the positive predictive and negative predictive value, we really don't know the answer yet, partly because we haven't tested enough. You need to do lots and lots of tests and know much about disease prevalence. Um, obviously, this depends, as a statistician, you'll appreciate this, is on the prior probability of having the disease, right? So if you do a lot of tests in, in patients who are mostly negative, then the signal-to-noise ratio is not going to be that good. Um, so we, and as, as again, Christiana alluded to and you alluded to, um, unless we have a really good idea of how many patients have the disease, particularly the asymptomatic ones, through widespread testing, we won't know that for a while. So let's talk a little bit about what these tests are. So uh, um, uh, you talked about PCR. So uh, real-time PCR is a way to detect viral RNA. So you're not detecting virus per se, but viral RNA. And this is done through uh, primers, which are little DNA sequences that can bind to the viral RNA. There are many different types of viral RNAs you can look at. And, um, and then you have an amplification step where you're trying to amplify that and detect that through some sort of fluorescence. And so the earlier you detect it, the lower is the number because you need less amplification cycles to detect it. So that's called a CT value, okay, cycle time. So lower cycle time means more virus present. Uh, and higher cycle time means uh, that less virus present or ultimately you have to make a cutoff and say beyond this, there's, there's no virus. So the, the first PCR test, which was the basis of the WHO test, was designed out of an academic lab in, in Germany. Um, and again, uh, they were able to test specificity because you can do that by seeing how good your test is against all other viral uh, R, uh, respiratory RNA viruses, right? Because you can test against influenza or SARS or MERS. And most of the companies that have these have tested them and found that they're close to 100% specific uh, meaning that you don't detect other types of viral RNAs with this particular test. Um, what they haven't been able to do is to tell us much about sensitivity because, again, uh, you don't know who for sure has the disease. So the way these tests have gone is that uh, most of the times they have uh, spiked um, biospecimens. So, for example, you can take sputum, normal sputum, spike it with different levels of synthesized virus, and then test how sensitive your test is. Here, for example, LabCorp has a similar test. They can detect, they claim, about 6.25 genome, genome copies per microliter. So uh, this particular number and how low can you get in terms of detecting the virus is going to be important in, in your other uh, parameters we talked about because that will tell us if the test is negative, is it truly negative or is, did the person have a very low level of viremia level of virus? So since then, there have been a whole uh, bunch of PCR tests. Um, you can distinguish this based on tests that are high throughput, designed for big clinical labs that can test a lot of samples, versus some tests that, for example, that may not be PCR-based, but are rapid tests. So Abbott, for example, that you might have read about in the news, 
has a test that's not PCR-based but has a very fast turnaround, and these will typically have much lower throughput. So tell us just a little bit what the throughput means. I mean, what are we talking about? So the throughput means like how many tests can you uh, do per day, right? So PCR tests that you can do in a thousand well dish, for example, with a turnaround time of four or five hours. So that particular lab can probably test, you know, 4,000 samples a day. The low throughput tests are, are, are maybe useful where, for example, the emergency room, you want to test someone right there. Okay, you don't want to send it out and you want it to answer very quickly. So you can test one particular person or what some companies are positioning themselves for is like, can you send it to patients at home? Just like a pregnancy test. So for example, there are tests that look like the, the pregnancy test, dipstick, where you can just test it and see, okay, do I have the virus? Um, do I have antibodies to it? So th- that's the sort of PCR test. Um, and that's the difference between uh, uh, high throughput and low throughput tests that people are designing. And then the other type of test is the uh, serological test. So these are tests in terms of have you been exposed to the virus and it detected, detects two different antibodies. Something called an IgM, which is an antibody that uh, arises first in response to a pathogen. And then there's IgG that is a more durable response that takes a little longer to last. So for this, you have to know when does the IgM come up? And people have actually looked at this. So a couple of studies have suggested the IgM comes up around um, 10 to 12 days and the IgG comes up in infected patients in about 12 to 14 days and uh, essentially tells us that the patients have been infected. The question remains that, you know, we are assuming that some level of immunity is uh, conferred by an infection. The question remains how good is this immunity and how long that lasts. But these tests might be sort of important in as we in the phase of uh, when the pandemic subsides and trying to figure out who has gotten immunity. And I think probably Nim will talk about herd immunity because it becomes important in terms of how many patients have been exposed and recovered. We see this data now all the time. If you look at BBC, it's now saying, well, how many people in Italy have actually recovered from the infection? So these things become important from an epidemiological and planning standpoint. So these tests, I think, will assume more importance as we go along. Great. Um, So, you know, two very important pieces you raised. One is no test is perfect, and some tests will tend to uh, give you more false positives. Some will tend to give you more false negatives, but the landscape is changing very rapidly. Any lessons, last question, any lessons for India? You know, given that this testing uh, environment is changing so rapidly, what would you suggest in terms of, you know, should they wait a little before deciding on a test? Should they start with serological testing? Uh, you know, I'm not asking you specifically for what they should do, but what should that decision be based on? What kind of information would you like to see so you can make that decision um, in a well-informed manner? So I think it depends a little bit on the ground situation there. So one of the things you have to be careful about is do you have enough supply of tests? Okay, so a lot of even places like US and Europe have been stymied a little bit by the supply change in chain in terms of getting these tests. So can you get enough tests that you can actually do these tests? The second is what is the capability of the different and let, let me just one one quick point, which is, you know, um, uh, just in terms of supply, uh, I was checking the numbers and South Korea did about 350,000 tests in eight weeks uh, for a population of about 40 to 50 million. So, you know, we are really talking about supply being India doing about 200,000 tests a day or a week, uh, or, or sorry, in a, in a week, uh, given India's population, if they want to reach South Korea levels. Yeah. So, you know, supply in India is going to be 
uh, a big issue to think about. But sorry, I interrupted. You. Yeah, yeah. In terms of what test, I, I, you know, my opinion is that probably diagnosing patients based on PCR that is currently being used as a gold standard to measure immunoassays with. Um, if you want the most uh, highly sensitive and specific tests, people have suggested combining the two. Now that is resource intensive, being able to do both tests, and I'm not sure how feasible that's going to be. But my guess is if you, if you can have large labs running these tests, um, high throughput tests to uh, uh, um, test high-risk populations in India, those being admitted, those that are living in close quarters with people who are confirmed, um, if that is the capability uh, to do that, and then uh, extensive contract, contact tracing, because again, uh, this would be a good segue into uh, NIMS uh, questions, um, that might be the way to go. But again, it really depends on what the ground level capacity is to do these tests. Um, there'll be plenty of data, I think, in the next two or three weeks as people publish um, uh, the, the current sort of experience with, particularly with sicker patients and patients with symptoms. I think the asymptomatic one is still, uh, you'd have to get that data either from South Korea or Germany, has, which has also done a pretty good job in expanding testing. Um, so those things will come online, I feel, in the next uh, few weeks that these things are, again, rapidly moving. Um, but, it, but you know, I, I think most of these tests look reasonable in terms of uh, being able to detect the viral RNAs. There are differences, obviously, uh, that are subtle and still not completely parsed out. But I think in terms of testing, probably the PCR test might be the way to start. This has been super helpful, and uh, it's a good time to now segue to uh, NIM in terms of thinking about the epidemiology. Uh, Yamini, do you, uh, do you want to start off? Thank you, Jishnu. Um, so, so NIMS, I think uh, we, we can segue right in uh, to understanding this, but let me just start with a very, very basic question. What is an epi model? Uh, sorry if this is too basic, but I think we've all started using these terms like we are now uh, experts in our own right. And I think it's important for us to be able to unpack this a little bit for the listener. Um, I think the, the important thing to, to remember is that the epidemiology of infectious diseases can be pretty complex because they're infectious. Mm -hmm. um, so if you think about, for example, non-communicable conditions like cancer, if we had uh, a new anti-cancer therapy that could uh, improve survivorship by, let's say, 50%. Um, if and when that becomes a standard of care, then we would expect the mortality rates in the um, amongst cancer patients to uh, to go down accordingly and in direct proportion. Um, on the other hand, if you said that you had a new influenza vaccine uh, that had improved effectiveness and um, you've uh, been able to improve the effectiveness from 60 to 85% then it becomes a lot harder to uh, calculate what the impact of that vaccine would be because the benefits of that vaccine are not just felt by the people receiving it, but also all the people that could have been infected otherwise. Um, and so uh, you have these complexities of transmission to, um, to take account of when looking at interventions against, uh, against infectious diseases. And it turns out that it's actually quite possible to capture many of these complexities using mathematical models. And so a mathematical model is basically nothing more than, than an, an abstraction. You know, you, you create an artificial population uh, and this population, our laboratory is usually on a computer. Um, so we, we have a simulation um, of, a, of a certain population. And um, 
we, we use mathematical equations to capture rules of transmission in this population, basically how often people interact with one another, how infectious the pathogen is, um, uh, and if you like, different types of risk groups. And then uh, using that uh, simulated population, we can then simulate the potential impact of different interventions. For example, the introduction of this new flu vaccine, or perhaps if you had um, a new novel pathogen, the, the potential impact of reducing uh, interpersonal contacts by 50% um, through, through, for example, a lockdown, and so on. So mathematical models are basically simulations or abstractions that allow us to explore these different uh, scenarios for um, what would happen to transmission dynamics if we, um, if we implemented different interventions. Uh, so Nim, these are, uh, as you said, these are simulations or models or abstractions of the world. One thing I guess I've been very puzzled by is even yesterday in the newspapers here in Washington, D.C., we had one group of people saying um, that Washington, D.C. will peak in terms of the numbers in July. We had another group saying it will peak in two weeks. Um, and I think there's been similar number of estimates starting to come out of uh, what will happen in India. Help our listeners understand a little bit, you know, if this is mathematics, you know, we usually think, okay, two plus two is four, three plus three is six. Why is it that we are getting very different estimates for what two plus two really is um, in, in, in this context? And why is it that, you know, where does this range of estimates really come from? And can I just add one follow-up there, which is, I think what's happening, at least in public discourse in India is, you know, we're saying, look at what happened in the US, look at what happened in the UK, look at Italy. You know, we're sort of basically imagining that the, 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 the nature of the disease in India will follow similar patterns to what we saw in other parts of the world. Is that apples to apples or are we comparing apples and oranges? Sure. Um, in terms of the question, why are we seeing this uh, multiplicity of uh, model projections? Um, I, I, I'd like your listeners to, um, uh, to consider that perhaps there are two conditions that you need for different models all to agree on the same thing. Um, uh, the first of those conditions is that you need excellent data that tells you exactly uh, where we are in the epidemic and how many people are infected and uh, also about the natural history of the infection. And the second condition is that you need uh, well-developed models uh, that are appropriate for the, for the disease at hand. And um, I have to say, unfortunately, I think neither of those conditions is actually satisfied at the moment. Um, but uh, you know, we can talk about the different models, um, perhaps, that, that may also be a subject of a, of a, of a later episode. But, um, uh, I mean, we can, but particularly about the data, I think this is one of the most acute challenges right now. So um, we, uh, we need very good surveillance data, for example, not just about what's happening um, amongst uh, respiratory episodes in hospital, but also in the community. So um, we, we can have a sense of uh, how far the, uh, the disease has progressed through the community, but also which specific population groups uh, it has been affecting. And of course, as we know, there, I mean, many countries have faced a lot of challenges uh, with regard to the, the access to the tests that they need in order to um, uh, implement community-based surveillance to that extent. So, um, uh, so what we're often finding is that models are flying in the dark in terms of the 
um, uh, the actual, if you like, the epidemic intelligence that they, they could use to, to make robust findings. And so um, the very best models, I think, are the ones that uh, present their findings, but also explain very clearly, put it in black and white uh, to the reader, um, just what the data uncertainty means for the, for the, um, uh, for the model outcomes. Um, and I think as we go forward in time and we start to learn more about the disease, and hopefully as the data also starts to um, become more um, comprehensive, then we'll start to see a convergence of the, um, of the results being provided by all of these different modeling approaches. And um, Yamini, uh, just to address your question about how, how seriously should we take comparisons between countries, I would say that, I mean, at the moment, there are, there are arguments on both sides of the discussion that, you know, suggest on the one hand that India is very different and, you know, that there's, uh, there's nothing that we can learn from other settings. Uh, and on the other hand, that um, we should expect to see epidemic outcomes in India that are, are very similar uh, to those being seen elsewhere. And of course, I think the truth is somewhere in between. I mean, I, I don't think that uh, the Indian population is so vastly different in terms of their, um, you know, uh, in terms of, for example, the growth rate of the epidemic that we might uh, expect than from other settings where we're seeing, for example, in China and Italy, we're seeing fairly similar sorts of growth rates uh, in these settings. One interesting potential difference is that we know that there are certain comorbidities that are associated with um, severe outcomes and potentially with mortality, for example, hypertension um, and diabetes. And uh, in South Asian populations, these tend to have a higher prevalence. And so it'll be interesting to know the extent to which this uh, shapes the severe outcomes um, of coronavirus infection uh, in the Indian population. But as with any of these speculations to do with how different India is from the rest of the world, I would file these under interesting hypotheses rather than findings that have strong scientific evidence. I think one of the things that all of you talked about was as this infection progresses, as the pandemic progresses, there is a need for more data, but there's also more information coming out all the time, right? Tell me a little bit in in a place like India, and maybe this is opening up for a broader conversation as well. What's the data we lack? And how is it that we can do a better job making sure that the epidemiologists and the doctors and the researchers have the data they need to guide our policy decisions? The data that I think would really enrich the, um, the work that at least modelers would be able to do is uh, perhaps two types of data. Uh, on the one hand, I'd suggest data that casts a lot more light on what's happening in the community. Uh, I would say on, on the one hand, this is data that would arise from um, large-scale uh, PCR testing amongst uh, symptomatics potentially, but also potentially amongst asymptomatic contacts of uh, known coronavirus cases. Um, but also uh, serological surveillance uh, to give us um, an idea of uh, the progression of the epidemic on a population scale. Uh, so that's one category of um, data. And the other category of data, and perhaps this has a bit more overlap with data that tells us more about the natural history of the disease. For example, what proportion of infections um, uh, don't ever develop symptoms and remain like that, but are still nonetheless potentially infectious. Uh, how infectious are those cases in relation to those uh, that actually do present with symptoms, um, and um, and so on. And you know, we're, we're getting some evidence about these these numbers um, from other settings, but we're having to piece these together. And so, perhaps more systematic um, 
uh, community level data collection may, may actually help to cast a lot more light on, um, on these data needs. Samia and Christiana, would you want to say anything here? Um, from a clinical perspective, I think from the data that we would love to know is something that Samia alluded to, is helping us better risk stratify who truly is going to do poorly versus who will have a, you know, a relatively um, stable clinical trajectory. And as Nim alluded to, we do know that there are some pre-existing medical conditions that make you more likely to have a poor outcome. Um, but we are seeing that um, in a variety of clinical scenarios, there are people who would normally we would not anticipate would have a challenging course who are. And that gets to Samia's point about better understanding perhaps the underlying immunology and virology of the disease. Uh, and that is important as we think about the questions that you started with, how do we plan from mm -hmm. a provider perspective and be ready to have both the ICU capacity, the clinical capacity, and the preparedness to protect our staff based on what we expect to be the natural um, clinical course of the disease. In comparison, um, you know, we are well versed in the flu and so to a certain degree, we, have an, we know when we can expect the seasonal peaks. We have an expectation of how many people will get sick and how many people will get severely sick and we can prepare for that and know how to handle that. So again, better understanding the natural history of disease and the clinical presentations within a given population um, will have important ramifications as we learn more about um, how people do well and alternatively how people do poorly. Yeah, I think uh, both of you have already covered most of the important points. I think uh, figuring out in the community how many people are asymptomatic carriers, what the level of viremia in these people are, how infective they are. Um, we don't quite have that data yet just because we haven't tested as much in the community. Um, we do know that there are, you know, if you look at where um, a lot of these patients are getting sick, uh, they're in old people's home where they're living in close proximity. Healthcare workers, when they were taking care of these, if you look at the Italian or Chinese experience. Um, so we don't know, probably those patients or those uh, conditions create high levels of viremia and infectivity that may, may or may not be true in the uh, community. Just don't know that yet because there may equally be a large number of asymptomatic people in the community. Um, and I think as Nim alluded to, if we can get serological testing, then we would know that how many, you know, if it's, it's different if there's only 5% of people in the community who have developed serological immunity versus 60%. So those are very different scenarios, both in terms of how the disease has already progressed and perhaps how do we get out of this? Nim, can I bring you back uh, to India for a moment, uh, just to understand this a little better? Uh, in uh, because I'm particularly interested in also taking, uh, trying to understand, given the underlying uncertainties um, in epi modeling for the moment, given the data gaps, India is not testing at scale at least for the moment, um, and we have to take a set of policy decisions: do we extend the lockdown? Do we do a graded lockdown? How? Do we handle the immediate crises in that we don't have the data? Um, and what can we do going forward to ensure that at whatever point in the next 
two weeks, three weeks, two months, I don't know. We emerge out of the lockdown. We are well prepared to better understand uh, the disease and figure out where and how uh, to ensure that we're handling this in a way that is you know, leading us into a graded lockdown or whatever next policy decision were to be taken. Yeah, of course, there are decisions that need to be made before some of the data can become available. One of the challenges that, that India faces and um, all of these other countries face is this risk of the epidemic becoming resurgent uh, once we release the lockdown. Um, and that's, uh, 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 that's a result that has, uh, you know, that's manifested in many of the different modeling studies from, uh, from different settings, whether it be the UK, the US or, uh, or even India. And um, the lack of data is certainly um, an important challenge, but uh, perhaps the immediate task is to uh, think of um, what is the most important data that we can collect that can help inform these decisions. And uh, like I say, uh, the uh, serology is perhaps one of the most immediate um, uh, sources of information that, that we could benefit most from. Christiana, one of the things you talked about is uh you know, as this disease progresses, we are learning quite a lot about experiences from different places. Uh, we're, I'm sure we're also innovating. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what are the kind of innovations that we are seeing um, and what's, uh, what's going on? I have been uh, impressed and continue to be impressed by the call to arms and the response that people have made. And so for the three large categories that we outlined before, again, sort of diagnostic testing, therapeutics, and then the need to protect providers and patients from, with protective gear, there's been really an outpouring of efforts in terms of thinking about what it is we do now and how we can do it better. And in particular, as we think about the communities in India and the ability to rapidly innovate in technological spaces, I think this could be a fantastic opportunity. So just to give you an example, um, you know, across the country, we've been faced with uh, limitations in our ability to rapidly source and provide effective shields, face shields, masks, goggles, gowns for healthcare providers and for patients. And so the engineering community, the technological community has really stepped up very quickly to use 3D printing to create and manufacture um, new PPE for providers. I've seen things being developed along the lines of um, repurposing scuba masks. I've seen things that are being you know, 3D printed within a day and um, being brought to manufacturers to be used, you know, in a relatively short cycle time. So, um, you know, the ability of people with talent, in particular in the technology space, to bring value to this pandemic, I think, is really incredible. Similarly, um, along the lines of what we spoke about before, in the diagnostic space, people coming forward with expertise like Dr. Doss and others, um, in terms of thinking about how do we create diagnostics and disseminate them quickly, and then on the therapeutic side, I mean, even some of the medications that we're talking about are repurposing old medications. So this is um, a situation where we need all people who have the ability to provide value to come to the fore. And there are lots and lots of ways to, con to contribute. And again, you know, in particular, the innovation, um, even within just PPE and creating better masks has been incredibly important 
um, and providing them to healthcare providers. And so again, creating new masks, sterilizing masks, these are all things that we've never really had to think about in the level of depth and detail that we are currently. And being able to innovate in that space has been critically important and will continue to be critically important, even in this acute phase, but in the long-term phase, as we think about how we're gonna deal with future pandemics or the potential resurgence of COVID-19 if we are able to control this current phase. Thank you, Christina. Somia, you had mentioned uh, in your earlier remarks as well that we are still learning about this disease. Um, is there anything as time goes that we can do to get a better understanding of things? What can the medical research community do at this point? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, this is pertinent to what's happening in India as well, because we'll see more patients there. Um, for example, bank samples, whether it's saliva or plasma samples, so that these tests that we talked about can be validated in, in larger and larger sample sizes to get a better idea of how good they are. The second is, uh, again, um, as Christiana just talked about, there are um, therapies that are being tried out. There's uh, uh, sometimes hype from the non-scientific community about how good a therapy is, but as scientists and um, and clinicians, um, you know, we, we want to see that a therapy works in a randomized controlled trial. Um, uh, the design of these could be innovative, but you still need to have uh, solid data that this works and in what population this works. So, um, you know, you can take the example of the malaria prophylaxis, uh, hydrochloroquinine or uh, chloroquinine that has been used in some trials across the world, small numbers. Um, and not clear evidence of benefit yet, but that's something, for example, as patients get admitted, that um, could be admitted to randomized controlled trials for these types of drugs uh, um, in Indian hospitals. And that would contribute quite a lot to the sharing of knowledge and uh, getting a better idea of how to treat these, or could some of these be used as prophylaxis after exposure? All these are questions that are being investigated, but can be contributed to by Indian researchers and uh, medicine community as well. Thanks. That's so useful because there's been so much focus, at least in the public mind, on the vaccine element of it that we haven't paid enough attention, I think, at least in the public debate on the therapy aspect and, and, and where research can really help innovate. Jishnu, over to you. So one thing we heard from all of you, um, and thank you, this has been a great discussion and I think we've learned a lot. Um, is there's a lot of learning going on. There's a lot of need for more learning. There's a lot of need for innovation, but people are coming together to make this happen. At the same time, and Nim, this is something you have thought about a lot. Uh, you know, your work on tuberculosis has been uh, particularly important for India. Tell us a little bit about how should India be prioritizing? I mean, what do we think about all the other illnesses, diseases that we have out there and how do we want to think about the whole landscape uh, rather than just COVID-19? It's an important point and I think the critical thing is that um, all of these important programs, health programs within India that have been making so much progress over the last few decades, um, we should be careful that we're able to maintain um, the activity and the patient support in these programs, even despite uh, the immense resource needs that the coronavirus response demands. I mean, you mentioned tuberculosis, so uh, India is perhaps the world's biggest country in terms of TB, 
accounting for about um, a quarter of global TB burden. Um, it also has the world's largest TB program in terms of the numbers of people being uh, put on uh, anti-TB uh, treatment. Now, we do know that uh, during the coronavirus response, a lot of the new molecular tests for TB are being repurposed for coronavirus uh, uh, the PCR diagnosis. The lockdowns are having potentially an uh, impact on the ability for uh, TB programmatic staff to develop, uh, to deliver the uh, uh, TB care uh, that is needed for, for patients in need. Um, and we simply don't know what the impact of these uh, changes are going to be in the longer term. So, um, of course, we're in uh, emergency mode. We're in emergency um, uh, outbreak response mode. And so there are compromises, short-term compromises, that would have to be made in terms of these service deliveries. Um, but I think the important thing for India and for other countries um, uh, suffering a high burden of these diseases is um, is to keep their eye on these uh, long longer-term conditions that, uh, that have been afflicting these countries for, um, for, for many years now. So it does seem, Nim, you have your work cut out because the EPI models need to now think not only about the COVID pandemic, but also what's going to happen to TB at the same time. You know, that's challenging, but what we are hearing from all of you is, yes, there are challenges, there are difficulties, but everybody is working round the clock to meet those. Uh, we are learning every day. We are innovating every day. We must fight our way out of this. Uh, Yamini. Uh, thank you, Jishnu. In fact, uh, another uh, sort of silver lining in the midst of, uh, of all of this uh, is that at least in India, finally, uh, public health is on the agenda. Everyone is talking about it. Uh, everyone is asking critical questions about uh, the, uh, our health infrastructure, our capacity and capability um, and one can only hope that uh, this combination of focus innovation uh, could also help ensure that while we deal with a current crisis we're also uh, putting health front and center in our policy discussions and uh, being able able to create an environment that will ensure that all diseases, TB, HIV, all the many different issues that both you, Nim, and others have been working on uh, actually become a part of a holistic approach to strengthening our health systems here. So on that note, uh, I'd like to say a very, very grateful thanks to all three of you for taking the time to join us here today um, and to Jishnu who helped curate this and bring all of you together uh, for this. Good luck to all three of you and thank you so much, not just for being on the podcast, but also for all that you're doing uh, to help keep us safe and healthy. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. This is the Center for Policy Research's fifth episode on the impact of the unfolding coronavirus pandemic in India. Stay tuned for future episodes. For more information on our work, follow us on Twitter at CPR underscore India or visit our website at www.cprindia.org.